This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Hi, this is Arjun, and it's a pleasure to bring to you amazing insights, thoughts, and discussions from leaders from all walks of life and all over the world. Each one of us are different, and that's the reason different leadership paths are great learning for me personally. I've always found that winning is fun. I live to win, but winning big puts all of us in a position of sustained success that really sets us up for the long term. In that spirit, today, it's my pleasure and honor to have here our VIP guest is Howard Friedman. Howard teaches at Columbia University. His primary experience is marketing risk, forecasting, segmentation, and operations. And some of the key impact areas are as diverse as healthcare, private equity, finance, retail, in the public sector, private sector, and academia. But what is not here is what, and you know, impressed the heck out of me is, Howard can see behind volumes of data, this one insight that can really help a business in any of these fields, literally make that big leap forward. And I'm really excited to learn from Howard today, how he does that and other secrets. So Howard, welcome to Secrets to Win Big. Thank you, it's a real pleasure to be here. And of course, Howard, I have to start exactly there. My curiosity is, how do you see that simple story that's hidden behind the most complex of data sets? And complex means like beyond complex that most of us do not even can comprehend. So what's your secret to do that, Howard? So I'm not sure it's, um... A secret, but it's funny you raise it, Arjun. Um, I think the softer skills that you don't see taught so much in school. It's about listening and empathy, and that's not um, that's not deep learning. That's not about all the advanced math, but it's about really understanding what is someone experiencing, whether it's a customer or a patient, and listening to experts in the field, and then absorbing what their advice is. And certainly my first big win in the corporate world was very much about listening and not about me crunching numbers. So tell me a little bit more about listening because you know, each one of us have different definitions of listening. Some of us listen just to respond. We are not even listening. You are listening at a much deeper level. Can you give me any example of what listening at the Howard level means? <laughs> well, uh, I was going to make a joke about not paying attention to your question, but I, I won't. <laughs> Thank you. In all, all seriousness, there are subtle things that happen, right? And let's say we're talking about a, a medical condition and we're trying to model it. There's the literature, right? You can look up what are some factors that might be predictive of mortality, mm-hmm. but also having the conversations with patients, 
having conversations with physicians, with clinical experts, and learning what is there that maybe isn't currently in the data, isn't currently in the literature. Because for me, the best value that I usually find in my modeling is not by moving up the ladder of more advanced methods, but often it's finding that additional variable, that extra data source that suddenly gives me 10, 15, 20% more power. So to mm -hmm. me, that's really the advantage. Getting that extra information first, often from talking to people, and then layering that in by finding those new data sources and modeling it that way. I love that. Finding that one piece of information, which is not currently in the data set, and that's the reason you're talking to every possible stakeholder. And it's not about going to the next level of analysis, but you're first broadening the extra data source. You know, you use the word predictive, and of course, right away, looking at your work, a lot of the work you do in modeling, and not only are you doing that as this super amazing you know, brain yourself, you're also leading a team, which is helping them think. And in every case, it's not an academic exercise. And that's one of the things that I really, really got fascinated because initially when I heard about you being a professor, I was not getting that, but till I got a chance to work with you, that's the time I realized that you're all about helping businesses find that one impact they can use. So how do you use this predictive modeling to get businesses to find that one future success? So the problems change based on the industries. And if we're talking about finance, for example, they're often concerned about risk. What's the probability that someone's not gonna pay back a loan, charge off? If you're talking about healthcare, it's often about mortality or health improvement. But if you're talking about, let's say retail, Maybe it's marketing and what's the probability that someone's gonna respond? So you have these predictive models, but you raised a really interesting point about being practical. And that's, I think, one of the fundamental things I like to approach. I, I really like to start by finding problems that we can solve and get those quick wins in before tackling a huge problem. And so what my approach often is, is starting with small sets of data, quick insights, discussions, getting those early wins, and then building up that momentum for a much bigger project. As for the idea of working in teams, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, they, there's an old phrase that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Uh, I want to go far. Yeah, I'd like to go fast. And that's when I do those little projects on my own. But that sets the insight for what those large group projects are where we bring in marketing experts, subject matter experts, coding experts, data engineers. And I think that's really where the things become most effective. The biggest wins happen is when you're leveraging that diverse set of talents, not relying on one or two, you know, quote unquote, unicorns to do everything for you. And Howard, what, what I really liked is the examples you gave in the different industries, you right away, found what I call the first domino. You talk about risk, mortality, or the response rate in that particular industry. And that to me is like, if you touch that first domino, everything else falls in place. And that itself was a huge insight to me was 
find what is the big thing, the one thing you're trying to make an impact. The second, what I really liked about this whole practical approach and building the momentum with the early win where you're not overwhelming yourself. And that quote that you had about go, you know, if you have to go fast, go alone, but if you have to go far, go together. I really think that's something for all of us in the business world, it's very important for us to look at. I think it's for life. I think it's beyond business, but uh, I appreciate that. And I think really um, there's a certain humility that has to come when you're trying to do, you know, when you're trying to win big. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can't show up assuming that you have all the answers. And, mm -hmm. and that's back to, I think, your, your very opening question about how do you do your best to listen, which is to be open to the fact that you don't know all the answers. And, and there are people in the room who probably have a lot more information than you. So here's a question building on that is, for somebody who is not just educated at the highest level, you're teaching people at the highest level, okay? Which tells me that you are at the highest level of knowledge. You're making an impact. So with all that, where is the, how do you keep a balance between confidence and humility? Hmm. Well, I think part of it is, there are areas where I, I'm probably a, a really true subject matter expert. And if someone is wrong factually and they're challenging me in that area, I'll probably correct them pretty clearly. I'll make, make sure they understand. Not true. This is why it's not true. I'll, I'll try to really pull that out for them. But when you start talking, and especially in business, about different industries, there's so much industry-specific knowledge that I may have a little bit, I may have intuition as a customer, but I certainly wouldn't know what someone who's been working at that company 5, 10, 20 years has. So let's say, for example, we were talking about a restaurant. And in their particular case, let's say they've got 20 or 30 key performance indicators. Well, I have some idea of which ones probably are most important, but I wanna work with that restaurant and their analytics people to say, what are you trying to achieve? What's the goals? Now, analytically, how do we go from this 25, 30 indicators down to just a small set that are closest to helping predict or correlate with your goal, right? And that's a conversation, it's data-driven, but it also, is me saying, I have a little bit of an impression as a customer, but I trust a lot more the intuition of the subject matter experts, and then I'm gonna verify with data. So it almost becomes a little bit of that Ronald Reagan trust but verify approach. I love that, I love that trust. And I think that's, I think really shows me that how you trust yourself and trust others, but then at the end, you're very fine. And staying with data, you know, the thing that I wanted to find out, and this is a few weeks back, I had talked to William Espy for 19 years. Years He was the brand voice of Chipotle. And he had said this incredible thing was, today, all of us want to be data-driven, but all of us must, real, must realize that every brand, even your competition, is looking at the same data. Which means if you only make decisions all creatives based on the same data, all creatives will look the same. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And the moment I heard, I really was waiting today to talk to you and try to understand that as businesses are spending so much and William being a great user of data, but also as the creativity, what are some key do's and don'ts for businesses as they get into the data-driven decision-making? Well, some of it is simply to your point, don't be blinded to the data itself. You don't have full information. Um, understanding your customer sometimes involves focus groups. Sometimes it involves surveys. Those are the types of areas where you're gathering information that maybe your customer, your competitors don't have. So it's not true that everyone has the identical information. Now, focus groups may not actually be perfectly predictive. People say things in a focus group or a survey that may not reflect their actual spending patterns. So I'm much more comfortable drawing decisions based on true spending patterns or in healthcare, true drug utilization patterns than more theoretical items. So in the, in the space, let's say of restaurants, I'm much more comfortable driving and creating clusters or segments of customers based on true data rather than on a survey. In healthcare, I'm much more comfortable developing predictive models based on real world effectiveness and real world data than on a clinical trial, which is somewhat artificial. So I think those are some distinctions. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, there is a big space for creativity and intuition. You know, Steve Jobs uh, certainly didn't do focus group after focus group as he was trying to innovate. He thought clearly about what he would want as a customer. Mm -hmm. He thought about what would be useful, what would be fun, what would be friendly. And I think that was something that was really imbued within the Apple ethos, which still exists today. And these are some of the most data intensive, data skilled people in the world, but there's a space that they exist and believe for creativity. And if you're in the food industry, there's plenty of space for that creativity as well as you're looking to develop new products. So all this, I think, Howard, you put this insights, especially on the pricing side, into your book, The Ultimate Price. And just to embarrass you a little bit, you know, some of the reviews and the feedback on the book has been simply wow. People have called this gripping. I love the second part is a topic you would like to avoid, but you can't, timely and valuable. Now, if somebody reads this book, what is the one key thought every reader will leave with? It's like the main reason you wrote this book. Hmm. Uh, maybe I'll get more than one thought, but it's really that price tags, dollar figures are constantly put on people's lives. They're ubiquitous they're often not fair. And when they're not fair, we should be informed and take action because those price tags impact our safety and how much our lives are protected because lives that are less valued are simply less protected. So there's about three and a half bullet points in there, but mm -hmm. I think they're important. And it's very much about understanding that this is not a theoretical exercise. It's if you don't have your life, adequately valued, then it won't be as protected, whether it's health insurance companies, regulators, or even our legal system. Yeah. 
So let me ask you a follow-up question, which is something that has been baffling me in the restaurant space. Somehow in the restaurant space, every restaurant gets inspired by gas station pricing of 396, 910, and want to price things at 499, 597. But whereas when I look back historically, the biggest price promotions of all times to me are Pizza Hut doing four bucks, four bucks, not for a million bucks, four bucks, dollar menu, Subway doing $5 foot long. So of course, you know, there's no absolute answer. So what's your personal thought on numbers on pricing? So it's a great, great example where like your experience plays in because what you can do is you can do some real world testing. So imagine that you're sitting there and you're doing these plans for Subway and they want to test. Are they going to do a foot long for $5 or are they going to do a foot long for $4.99? Well, design a test, run it in different comparator groups, different markets, but do it in the real world and see what happens in terms of purchase patterns. Do you see a difference or not? Now, that may not be true for the rest of all time, but certainly in the areas you tested, around when you tested, that'll tell you whether a foot long for $5 or a foot long for $4.99 makes a difference. And that's the beauty of doing these tests. It's designing it, studying it, getting your results, and then going to scale with it so you can really maximize. By the way, as you started mentioning that, I had the same examples in my mind. When you said that, I thought dollar menu. So, mm -hmm. which means they have the same mind share in me that they have in you. So clearly something worked. Absolutely. And I also like the way you talked about the very fact something worked in the past doesn't mean it'll work now or tomorrow. And also connecting to the segments that you talked about, I really think that your testing concept and doing an A to AB testing, especially among groups you want to focus on, I really is, think is a great insight. And it's all about you know, going back to what am I trying to move in my business, reducing risk, reducing mortality, or you know, uh, increasing response rate. You're listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun. And today, my VIP guest, and it's truly a pleasure talking to Howard Friedman, a data scientist with a vision, an author, and a business leader, who I really think has some magical powers to see insights in megadata. So this last section, Howard, is really a fun section where we just want to know one thought, one sentence for some really simple questions. Are you ready? All right, I'm ready. Okay. First, we are going beyond all the data. So what's your advice to anybody in any walk of life to be a successful leader? Listen and empathize. The Love best that. leaders I've ever worked for took the time to know me mm -hmm. and that I did anything to please them because they cared about me. Love that. Second is, how do you define a big win in any of the industries you've worked in? Did it change the status quo? Did it change how the industry or the company did business? And I've had a few which changed how an industry did their job. Those were big wins. I love that. 
It's like taking iPhone 11 to iPhone 13 and not iPhone 11.168. Love that, making a big change. And finally, as we go for big wins, what is one of the most important drivers for big wins, sustained big wins? Small wins. <laughs> and I'm totally serious. Mm -hmm. I look to get small wins first, mm -hmm. show that what we're doing can happen, build my confidence, the team's confidence, management's confidence, mm -hmm. and then we go for the big win. I never step up to the plate and see if I can hit a home run on the first swing, because if I do, promise you I'm missing the ball. I love that. And again, initially, when you gave the answer, I was also smirking, but the next second I realized how powerful your answer was. But just to digress for a second, one of the goofiest thing I've done in my whole life, again, I blame it on my daughter, was I was planning to, or planned and prepared for half a marathon. But then I changed it night before to a full marathon because she said, hey, you know, from 18 miles, I'll take you rest of the way. And when she met me at mile 16, because I couldn't make till 18, all she told me that, all you have to take is one more step. And that one more step got me across 26.2 miles and I really now can appreciate what you talked about is without that small win or one more step, I wouldn't have had the big win. So I really appreciate you taking me back and you know how special my daughter is to these amazing memories. So next is, you know, for most leaders, they rule out some obstacles in their mind. Like some athletes I've worked with, they literally remove the word dictionary, no, uh, remove the word no from their dictionary. What's the word not in your dictionary? Quit, although it should be in the dictionary. <laughs> I've definitely gone down roads that I just should have stopped. Mm -hmm. So maybe I need to put that one in. Okay, love that. If Howard today, such a wise man, could go back to that Howard, that kiddo who is just getting out of high school, full life ahead, what would be one advice Howard would give to that young Howard Friedman? that you don't have to plan the rest of your life. Be open to change. And my career has had many changes over time. Mm -hmm. But when I was finishing up high school, I really felt like I needed this path. I needed this clear vision of what I was going to do for the next few decades. I don't know why I felt I needed it, but certainly I don't, didn't. And I don't think anyone really does at that age. Why is it so important? You know, for all of us to be open to change, especially in today's world. I know it's a loaded question with change happening as you and I talk, the world has changed in the last mm. 20 minutes. Because there's a limit to what you can prepare for, what you can control. You may be the absolute greatest Pascal language programmer in the world, but what happens when no one needs Pascal? Mm -hmm. Or you may have some other dream and you've decided you're gonna be a, an incredible Olympic athlete, but, but an injury prevents you. So there are things that you can do and you can own and do your best on, but the world has lots of other things going on. And because of that, you have to be open to change. You have to understand who you are isn't necessarily just the job you do. And I guess the, the last thing I would think about and offer to 
to Howard at eight, you know, when he's finishing high school is the relationships, the people yeah. you meet, the friendships, the family, they will be the things that you'll merit and judge the quality of your life on. Money is important because you need some, but it's not the driving factor. Education is important, but probably not the driving factor either. And I also liked the connection between both your answers about, you know, the whole be open to change and always find a path connects to the no quitting. Again, there are times we all need to quit and reset, but I really like both these connections. And finally, Howard, you know, there is incredible amount of discipline in what you do. Okay. And I've also found that, you know, super leaders like you have repeated success because of process. There's a process because success that comes without a plan or process cannot be repeated. So is there a process routine that you have? Like, what's the first thing do you do when you wake up? What's the last thing do you do before your work day is winding down? You know, is there something you want, you're comfortable sharing? Well, when I first wake up, I actually have an exercise routine I do. Uh, before brushing the teeth or anything else, I, I, do, I have an exercise routine and I do about five, 10 minutes of that, Tai Chi and some push-ups and I'm energized and ready to go. That does it for me. That gets my day started. Why is and, that so important at the beginning of the day to do that routine every day, even before brushing the teeth, like that important? I think because for many people and certainly myself, my my attitude my productivity is very much linked to how i'm doing physically right. i'm much much more productive early morning than in the evening find me at 6 a.m and i'll be getting far more work done than find me at 6 p.m that's just me so i think some of it might be biology but i find that doing that really helps start my day and then i feel good about myself mm -hmm. mentally and then I'm ready to tackle things. And what's the last thing? That I do before going to bed? Yeah. Um, I read something. I, I don't finish my day with screen time. I don't finish with any, you know, anything else. I always read something. And what that something is could, could be just a fun novel, could be nonfiction, could be a kid's book, could be anything. But it's that process of reading that clears my mind. Mm -hmm. I enjoy the reading and it also brings me to a point where I can fall asleep well. Because for me, I can do very well off five solid hours of sleep, but not very well off of eight or nine bad hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. So Howard, this was absolutely incredible this conversation, learning from you. So what's the best way audience members can reach you? And also what's the best way for people to get access to your book, Ultimate Price? Well, this was a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, as for reaching me, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out to me there. You can find me. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter where I do share some of the articles I read on LinkedIn. And uh, for Ultimate Price, you'll find that it's available online at Amazon and many other places. Uh, for those who prefer 
reading other languages. It's being translated into Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and a few other languages. So things are going quite well there. Wow. So thank you, Howard. So you were listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. And today, our, my conversation was with Howard Friedman, an incredible data scientist with a vision, an author, and a business leader. And as I mentioned earlier, Howard sees that key insight in megadata every time. There are a lot of incredible insights. And if there are three things, if I want to pick from today that I want to bring in in front of all of us, one is, you know, Howard talked a little bit about perspective. He talked about how to be open, how to be humble, how to trust himself, trust others, but verify. And he also talked about many a time, it's all about that extra data source. And for that, along with all the traditional, you know, quantitative numeric data, it's important to talk to different stakeholders to see, do you get this extra perspective that adds an extra dimension that was missing before. The second, Howard talked about a very simple vision. And the vision is about why we are doing this from the end user's point of view. When he talked about different industries, he gave examples about, is it about reducing risk? It is about reducing mortality, you know, uh, increasing response rate. And the path to all those big wins start with small wins. And finally, on the leadership side, Howard brought in really two very simple but very relevant facts. One is the importance of listening and listening with empathy. Because I haven't seen a single person who admits that I do not listen. But most of us, many a time, do not listen. So I think that's the part was very important is least listen with empathy. And the second part also, Howard, when he talked about was if you go fast, if you have to go fast, go alone. But if you have to go far, go together. Really put in perspective for what team members and what team leadership is all about. Again, a fascinating conversation. It's a pleasure to bring you these insights from leaders of all walks of life. Welcome again, and thank you for joining Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. And it would be my pleasure to bring you another insight from another leader from another walk of life really soon. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast with your friends, and happy listening. Thank you. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.